Today on Open the Bible, we continue a special presentation of Pastor Colin Smith's book, Heaven, So Near, So Far. This program, in a dramatic reading, is the story of Judas Iscariot. Pastor Colin has weaved together what we know from the Bible about the events of those days and views them through the eyes of Jesus' betrayer as he would have experienced them at the time and as he can understand them now. What decisions did Judas make as he followed Christ even to the end? Well, let's hear more now from heaven. So near, so far. Welcome to the special edition of Open the Bible. Now, we are in the middle of a unique broadcast series that's called Heaven So Near So Far. It's the story of Judas Iscariot. It's based on the book written by our Bible teacher and host, Colin Smith. And uh, Colin, uh, we began this story by looking at Judas's ambition and the fact that Jesus actually sent him out on mission. Today, we're going to pick up with chapter three of this book. And uh, we begin to really kind of look at what was driving so much of Judas's ambition and his mission, which really seemed to be about being a, a part of a movement and raising a lot of money. Yeah, for sure money was an issue. I think that at his heart, you know, Judas wanted Jesus to fulfill his agenda. And you know, that never works. Mm, yeah. Anyone who tries to get Jesus to fulfill my agenda ends up abandoning Jesus. The only way to be a disciple of Jesus is that he is Lord and I become a follower of him. And uh, there surely were many factors in uh, Judas's betrayal of Jesus, but one that the Bible makes very clear was money. And uh, we're told about that particularly when Mary poured out a very costly ointment over Jesus. Yeah. I suspect, as we're going to see in the uh, drama today, that uh, Judas' concern over money began a little bit earlier because uh, that issue came up often in regards to the disciples of Jesus. Well, we're going to continue with chapter 3. It's entitled Frustration. Chapter 3. Frustration. It bothered me that when the 12 apostles were listed, I was always the last to be named. But I took comfort from something Jesus said about the last being first and the first being last. If that turned out to be true, it would be bad news for Peter and good news for me. Given my position at the end of the line, I was always looking out for ways to advance my cause. And given my ability with numbers, it seemed natural that I should offer to serve as treasurer for our ministry. Accounting is not glamorous work. but. I knew its importance. Holding the purse strings would give me a certain power over the others. I saw this as an opportunity not to be missed. There were 13 of us on the road, and from time to time others joined us, expanding our group and increasing our costs. None of us was paid, but we all had to eat. And as treasurer, I saw it as my responsibility to make sure that we would never run out of funds. I was always looking to attract the kind of people who could help bring our ministry to a broader audience. However, to my growing frustration, Jesus had a habit of letting our best opportunities slip away. The first time it happened was when a highly successful entrepreneur came asking for help. I could see that he was serious from the way that he knelt before Jesus. I could also see he was loaded. Good teacher, he said. What must I do to inherit eternal life? My pulse quickened. 
Here was a man who clearly had the means to fund our entire operation. I was already counting on his money as if it were in the bag. Before Jesus answered his question, my mind was racing to what this man could do for us if he got on board. If Jesus plays this right, I thought we will be funded for life. The man's objective was to inherit eternal life. And from the way he framed his question, it seemed clear that he was ready to do whatever it would take. Jesus started out by pointing the man to the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The man seemed pleased. I've been doing all these things since I was a boy, he said. Then Jesus said, you lack one thing. This was the moment. I held my breath, waiting for Jesus to tell him that life could be his if he would join us. And that is exactly what Jesus did say. Come, follow me. But he blew it, both for the man and for us, in what he said first. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. There were two problems with this. First, it was asking too much. The sensible approach would have been to draw the man into our circle and then ask him for more as our relationship deepened. But no, with Jesus, it was always the same, all or nothing. He insisted on reigning as the supreme Lord over all who professed to follow him. And I could see that with the resources this man had, what Jesus was asking would be impossible. The second problem was that giving to the poor was the wrong use of the money. What good would this man be to our group if he offloaded all of his assets before he joined? The man's response was predictable. His face fell. He got up from his knees and walked away from Jesus. Having come with great anticipation, he left with great sadness. Looking at this from my position as treasurer, I could only see it as a wasted opportunity. This man was the kind of person who could really make things happen. And if only Jesus had said, come, follow me, and you can help us with our mission, the man would have joined us gladly. That encounter left a bad taste for all of us and it led Jesus to take us aside for a candid conversation on this issue of money. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, he said. We were amazed. Surely not. Jesus insisted, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. To me, this seemed ridiculous. If those who made a success of their lives could not get into God's kingdom, who in the world could? Jesus looked at us directly, as he always did when he came to the point he most wanted us to remember. With man, it is impossible, he said. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Money often came up in the teaching of Jesus. I had always thought of money as a friend, but Jesus taught us that money has power. He spoke about money as a master, as if it were a rival God seeking to make you its servant and to take control of your life. 
No man can serve two masters, Jesus said. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is like fire, a good friend and a terrible enemy. Kept in its place, it has the power to sustain you. But when it takes control, it has the power to destroy you. Believe me, I know. Money became my master, and it wants to become yours. It is a power, and unless that power is brought into submission, it will run and rule your life. It wasn't just the opportunities to raise money that were wasted. Often when our crowds were growing, Jesus would speak in a way that was obscure, or sometimes even offensive. People who might easily have been drawn in were alienated and left us instead. The worst example of this happened at what I thought was our supreme moment of opportunity. That astonishing occasion when Jesus fed over 5,000 people by multiplying the loaves and the fish. The crowds were so impressed they were ready to make Jesus king right there in the desert. It was clear to me that the time had come for us to ride the momentum of their support and take our movement to the next level. But Jesus had no interest in their attempt to politicize his mission, and instead of seizing the moment, he slipped away from the crowd. The following day, when word got around that we were back in Capernaum, many who had been fed in the desert arrived, looking for more. The words Jesus spoke to them were hard to understand. I am the bread of life, he said. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Then he accused them of not believing, which surprised me first because they had made the effort to come and hear him, and second because even if it was true, such a direct approach was hardly the way to win their favor. Not surprisingly, the crowd became restless, but Jesus just kept going. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, that was hardly a message that would win friends and influence people, but then it got worse. Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. People found this offensive. But Jesus insisted that the reason they found it hard to hear was that although they had professed to be his disciples, some of them did not believe. It was as if Jesus was sifting the crowd, intentionally sorting out those who had really submitted to his authority from those who had been merely caught up in the crowd of his followers. Well, if Jesus was trying to lose his crowd, he certainly was successful. Many who had been with us turned back, and Jesus just let them go. I was devastated. For so long, we had been working to build a mass movement. We had been blessed with great success, and now in a single day, so many people who had joined us were gone. The twelve of us looked at each other in stunned silence. How could Jesus lose so many people? Then he asked us, do you want to go away as well? Peter spoke up first 
Lord, to whom shall we go? He asked. You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It was a ringing endorsement and affirmation of Jesus, but I wasn't sure if Peter was speaking for all of us. <laughs> what was Thomas thinking, I wondered. Then Jesus said something quite extraordinary. Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. At the time, this made no sense to me at all. How could one of us be a devil? We were Jesus' disciples. We had left everything to follow him. We were the ones who had been casting out demons. What could the devil have to do with any of us? Jesus had never said anything remotely like this before. He had known from the beginning that someone would betray him. He did not say who this would be, but he made it clear that one of us in his inner circle had thoughts of desertion and was capable even of treachery. Despite all my doubts and frustrations, it never occurred to me that I might be the one. Chapter 4 Objection We were out in the sticks east of Jordan when Jesus received word that one of his closest friends had become ill. The friend's name was Lazarus, and the cry for help was sent out by his sisters, Martha and Mary. I knew that Jesus loved these people dearly, so I was surprised when on hearing the news that Lazarus was sick, Jesus seemed to pay no attention. But two days later, Jesus announced that we were going to Bethany, where Lazarus and his sisters lived. By the time we arrived, Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Martha came out to meet us first. Lord, she said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus assured her that her brother would rise again. Martha agreed. She had always believed what the scriptures say about a day of resurrection at the end of time. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Then Mary came out to meet Jesus, and she fell down weeping at his feet. Jesus was deeply moved and began to weep himself. Then he asked about the tomb. Lazarus had been buried in a cave with a stone set in front of it. Jesus told the mourners to take away the stone. Before we knew it, the stone had been removed, and Jesus was shouting in a loud, commanding voice, Lazarus, come out! To my complete amazement, Lazarus came out. This miracle exceeded everything else that Jesus had ever done. It was stunning in itself and staggering in its implications. If Jesus could raid the realm of the dead and call people out at will, nothing would be impossible for him. We celebrated with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. 
a man who had been in the grave, but now reclined next to Jesus and engaged in animated conversation with his friends. I noticed Mary's eyes moving from Jesus to her brother and from her brother back to Jesus. Having gone through the agony of losing Lazarus, she had experienced the love and comfort of Jesus, standing with her in her sorrow, and then she had witnessed a glorious demonstration of Christ's power in which her brother had been restored to life and given back to her. It didn't surprise me that Mary wanted to express her love and gratitude to Jesus. But what she did next brought me to a moment of clarity that would propel me onto a new and deadly path. Mary brought out a large flask of perfume. My eyes widened as I recognized its value. The equivalent of an entire year's wages. I had no idea that we had an asset like this in our group. And if Mary was ready to give it up, it was the kind of gift that would really make a difference. Mary approached Jesus, opened the bottle, and started to pour the perfume over his head. I had no problem with Mary anointing the head of Jesus with this perfume as a sign of her devotion. The problem was that she kept pouring. The perfume was about a pint in volume, and as Mary poured it out, it ran over Jesus' shoulder, soaked into his robe, and dripped down onto his feet. When the last drop fell from the bottle, Mary knelt before Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. What a waste! The extravagance of her gesture left me cold. It seemed like fanaticism to me, and a complete misuse of a valuable asset. Something needed to be said. I needed to express my strong objection. And so as Mary moved away from the feet of Jesus, I took her aside. What in the world do you think you're doing? Do you have any idea how much that perfume was worth? It would take me a year to earn enough money to buy that, and in a single, reckless moment, you have just blown the whole lot. Mary replied, Judas, you don't know much about love. To you, the cost of the perfume made what I did wrong. To me, the cost of the perfume made what I did right. I wasn't the only one who thought Mary's act of devotion was excessive. Several of the others spoke up in support of me, saying that what Mary had done was a waste. They were right, and I had nothing but contempt for what she had done. In my frustration, I took the moral high ground and asked, why was this ointment not sold in the money given to the poor? Looking back, I don't know why I brought the needs of the poor into the conversation. If I had been responsible for the money that could have been gained from the sale of the perfume, I certainly would not have given it to the poor. That would have been as wasteful as pouring the perfume over Jesus. The trouble with taking a stand is that you expose yourself as a target. And John used this against me. Judas, you are not saying this because you care about the poor, he said. You are saying this because you are a thief. We trusted you with our common purse, and you have been helping yourself to the money. 
The reason you want the perfume sold is so that you can get your hands on it. It was an outrageous accusation, and I knew he had no proof. I'll admit, from time to time, I would borrow from the bag, but always with the intent of returning what I had taken. Jesus came to Mary's defense. Leave her alone, he said. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Then, looking directly at me, Jesus said, You always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. There was no doubting the rebuke. Jesus had been clear in his teaching about giving to the poor, and he did not contradict what I had said about its importance. His point was that I had failed to discern the unique significance of the moment in which we all found ourselves. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, he said. When Jesus spoke about his burial, the mood among the disciples changed. At first, they agreed with me in my outrage at the waste, but now they repositioned themselves in the light of Jesus' words. The moment of tension passed, and the celebration resumed. But not for me. I looked on at the joy of the others as if I were watching through a window from the outside. There had been a profound change since the sunny days when the twelve of us committed ourselves to Jesus. I had seen great potential in the crowds we had drawn, an extraordinary resource in the ability of Jesus to perform miracles at will, and a unique opportunity in the ministry we had built. But ever since we set out on that long journey to Jerusalem, Jesus seemed to be absorbed in contemplating something quite different. He spoke about giving his life as a ransom for many. He repeatedly said that the Son of Man must be killed and told us that if we wanted to follow him, each of us must be ready to take up a cross of our own. This gloomy talk did not appeal to me. And the more I heard it, the more uncomfortable I became. If Jesus wanted to lay down his life, that was for him. But I had no interest in laying down mine. I was interested in building a future. I had followed Jesus with this in view, but after three years, our ministry seemed increasingly like a tale of missed opportunities. What had come of it? Jesus repeatedly failed to make the pragmatic choices to build a mass movement. The result, which I as treasurer saw all too plainly, was that after three years, our shared purse was no greater than it had been at the beginning. Beyond that, the tide was turning against Jesus. The raising of Lazarus may have been Jesus' greatest work, but it was also the trigger that brought hostility toward him to an entirely new level. With so many witnesses to Lazarus' death and burial, and the evidence of his resurrection available to anyone visiting Bethany, many came to believe in Jesus as a result. But that caused consternation in Jerusalem and led to the authorities renewing and intensifying the resolve that Jesus should be put to death. With this in view, the chief priests gave orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should inform the authorities so that they might arrest him. This put me in immediate danger. 
Under the new order, simply being with Jesus would be enough to indict me on a charge of obstructing justice, withholding information vital to an investigation, and aiding and abetting a known criminal. I'd become a follower of Jesus in the hope that this would be to my advantage, but it was now abundantly clear that I needed to reconsider what was in my best interests. For some time, I had a growing suspicion that I might be more at home in the company of Jesus' enemies than I was in the circle of his friends. The waste of the perfume at Bethany turned that thought into a settled conviction. It was time to move on. What a potentially dangerous place to be. You're listening to Heaven So Near So Far, the story of Judas Iscariot. And our dramatic reading is based on the book by Colin Smith called Heaven So Near So Far. And Colin, we have just a brief moment and I want to hit on something. That contrast between Mary and Judas. And one of my favorite lines in the book is where Mary said, Judas, you don't know much about love. To you, the cost of the perfume made what I did wrong. To me, it made it right. Yeah, and you know, at the very heart of what it means to be a true Christian is to love Jesus Christ. That's the difference between Judas and Peter, and it's the difference between Judas and Mary. Hmm. May the true love of Jesus Christ be in all of our hearts. Well, as you're listening to this dramatic audio reading, maybe there's someone that is on your heart and your mind, and you'd love to give them a copy of this book or this audio book. Contact us here at Open the Bible. We'd love to be able to get that to you come to our website. It's openthebible.org.uk. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time. For more information on Open the Bible and this special presentation of Heaven So Near So Far, visit openthebible.org.uk. And while you're at the website, I hope you'll browse the number of changes that the team have been making there, including making it simpler for you to show your support for the ministry. And when you do, they're pleased to offer you a free copy of Pastor Colin's new book, Six Hours That Changed the World. Pastor Colin helps us consider the seven times that Jesus spoke from the cross, showing us what he did on the cross was a demonstration of his love for us. And you can receive a free copy when you go to the website and set up a regular donation of at least £5 a month. Learn more when you go to openthebible.org.uk. That's openthebible.org.uk. What you are going to do, do quickly, Jesus said to me. There was no doubt about his meaning. I had made my decision, and Jesus was dismissing me from the room. I got up and left without looking back. I walked out into the night knowing that I was finally done with Jesus. We continue heaven so near, so far on the next Open the Bible.